0: welcome to episode number 47 of the jackson hole connection brought to you by the liquor store of jackson hole supporting the community of jackson hole and the surrounding valley for over 35 years please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash tls to learn more welcome to the jackson hole connection i'm stephan abrams your host I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both professionally and personally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence, which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection Podcast. My guest today is my friend Brad Mead, a lawyer, rancher, father, husband, and whiskey maker. Brad's great-grandparents homesteaded in Jackson Hole from Idaho in the late 1800s, around the base of what is now Teton Village. Today Brad and his wife Kate still live and operate a cattle ranch on the same property his great-grandparents and grandparents ranched. And the beef they raise can be enjoyed at several restaurants around the valley. Throughout life in the valley, Brad has always continued to give back to his state and local community. Brad's life passion of being curious and always learning has led him down many exciting paths each with its own exciting story. Today you can find Kate and Brad selling their locally raised beef at local farmer markets or traveling around the state talking about the great whiskey they started, Wyoming Whiskey, now being distilled by their son, Sam Mead. As Brad said, being curious is a really important part of life. I'm honored Brad took the time to visit with me for this delightful conversation. Brad, I was thrilled and excited when you accepted my invitation to be here on the Jackson Hole Connection. Well, I'm sorry we played phone tag for a while, but I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, sometimes the best things waiting for happen with good patience. Sometimes they
1: do, <laughs> or procrastination.
0: <laughs> right. Well, you and your family has a phenomenal history here to the Valley, and I usually start off asking what is somebody's connection to Jackson Hole and that's probably a good four-day conversation with you <laughs> um, but tell me to begin in in a quick summary your connection here to Jackson Hole
1: um, I my great uh, grandparents homesteaded here I'm still here <laughs> I guess that's a, that's as short as I can I can make it They hit homesteaded here in the late 1800s at the base of what is now Teton Village and ended up deciding after a period of I don't know how long uh, to move to the east side of the Snake River because according to family lore there was too much snow and there were way too many mosquitoes there at the time so, they eventually ended up on the east side of the Gremont River, and over the course of time, my uh, great-grandfather and my granddad acquired ground south into what is now Spring Gulch, which is where I'm still located and where the ranch is. And you were born here in Jackson? I was not. You were not? I was not. Where were you born? You're maybe only the second person that's ever I've ever confessed that to. I... Um, I was born in Bridgeport, California. No kidding. Yeah. Um, my, uh, so I used to write a column for the paper and Angus Thurmer wanted to call it Native Son and I confessed this to him. I said, actually, I was born in California. So he ended up calling it uh, Generation Four because I was the fourth generation in Jackson. But my folks um, were, at the time I was born, uh, working at Mammoth Mountain Ski Area. My dad was a, a big skier and, at the time, and um, this was in the 50s, and uh, my mom uh, was there, and I think they were working for I don't know, a season or something there, I don't know exactly, um, but and yeah. Anyway, that's where I was born. And I, I, I was back here within a month. I always hasten to add they moved back to um, okay. Jackson. Okay. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. 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 But maybe that doesn't need to go on the radio or, or on the podcast, but that's the truth. That's <laughs> that's where I was born. My brother and sister were born here. My mom was born here. My granddad was born here. Uh, but I was not. Okay. I spent it for a fair bit of time in the hospital here, but it wasn't being born. Yet. <laughs> Uh, and you've probably seen that hospital develop and
0: grow a little bit compared to when your
1: grandfather was born there. Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't there when he was born there, when well, my grandfather yeah. was born. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely um, it's pretty amazing, actually, the way it looks now compared to the way it was before. You know, And it used to be where St. John's Episcopal Church is. And my great-grandmother was one of the ladies. If you go in the hospital now by the boardroom they have the first kind of ladies auxiliary or whatever and there's mm-hmm. a picture of her there so they were uh, I think smart enough to want to recognize the need for medical care here in an isolated place long before the days of air ambulance or whatever and um, you know the community built that hospital and it's, it's pretty amazing it in is. my view. is yeah. we're
0: very lucky to have it yeah and in your Time of growing up here, from a month old to now, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) right? um, You've seen some remarkable changes and developments. Jackson Hole is a unique place. We're very rural as far as distance, but when you think about the amenities and resources that our community have, we're very wealthy in in that aspect. We have tons of music. We have arts. We have um, plenty of groceries. It's not as though that we live in a rural community we have to drive an hour to go get to a grocery store. Right. When you were growing up here, Jackson was not like that. It's not like what it is today. No, it well, wasn't. <laughs> tell me what it looked like being the son and grandson and great-grandson of ranching family.
1: Um. Well, people have probably seen pictures of, of Jackson in the, in the 50s and 60s, even maybe in the 70s. And, you know, there were some businesses that catered to visitors because there have always been visitors. But there were a lot more day-to-day, practical kind of businesses, grocery store, service stations, businesses that catered to sort of everyday needs of locals um, than there are... I mean, maybe they're the same amount now, but they're overwhelmed by the businesses that are specifically tailored to the tourist economy. So, town's obviously much, much bigger. Um, when When I was growing up, it stopped uh, sort of at the Flat Creek Bridge, with the exception of the Virginian, but beyond that, there wasn't very much. There was something at the Y, and there was a drive-in movie theater um, down by, no, I guess it's high school road. Um, but there wasn't very much there. And so obviously it's changed a lot, you know, and not just in terms of of the number of people and, and the growth, but it's, uh, I remember my grandmother being asked this question about, oh boy, I bet you've seen a lot of changes. And she said, yeah, but you know, a lot of it's pretty amazing. Um, we've got restaurants that are, World class. We've got a symphony. We've got world class skiing. We've got all that stuff. Uh, It's not all bad, and I think people are quick to go, "Boy, the good old days." But a lot of stuff we have now is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, So that's one change. I think uh, social stratification is another one for sure. I don't think there were a lot of extraordinarily wealthy people in Jackson, or at least if there were, you weren't aware of it. And I think that there weren't a lot of people who uh, were st- struggling. There was there was a broader, healthier kind of middle class, I would say, than there is now. And being a ranching family, what was that like? Um, you know, I don't know if I ever thought about it. I, it uh, many of my classmates were ranch kids. Mm-hmm. I don't. You know, we did different jobs in the summer than our friends in school. But when school was in session, we did sports and spent some time in town when we'd stay overnight with somebody. I mean, I don't know that we ever, I ever really thought about the difference between ranch kid and and not ranch kid. It wasn't a huge distinction, really. Well, so many families were ranching families, right? Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't an it wasn't the oddity it is now mm-hmm. to be doing that
0: in Jackson. And currently, you're ranching land that your great-grandfather settled in? Yeah, some some of it. Uh Okay. And some land that your grandfather settled in. Right. Okay. And your grandfather, there's a story connected with him and the park. Right. Yeah. And
1: tell me more details about that story. Uh, Okay. Without swearing that every detail is historically accurate. Sure. He was, (laughs) I think he was a county commissioner at the time. And I think that the consensus in the county commission at the time the monument was created and then when the park was created that it was gonna be a catastrophic hit to Teton County's tax base, which probably at the time wasn't great, I don't know, but they were worried about that. And I think there was maybe a little bit of drama injected for fun and so, they, in defiance of the federal government, rode out to meet the park with um, an actor at the time named Wallace Berry. He was a famous guy, and um, Mr. Gill was there, and so a lot of old-timey locals. And they rode up, in the park had the wisdom to just ignore them, and they didn't go out to confront them. And it, it made the papers a little bit. Um, but the upshot of it is, and maybe you know this part of the story, is my granddad always... Uh, mentioned afterwards in speeches and to me personally um, that that was an instance where he was completely wrong and he was grateful for the Rockefeller's family in creating the park and a lot of what you just talked about in Jackson I don't think would be the way it is or the quality that we now experience if those people hadn't done that Mm -hmm. for sure you know. (laughs) So with hindsight, good for them. Glad we lost that argument you, yeah very true yeah. and um says a lot
0: for your grandfather's stature to reflect back on that at some point and say you know what i was wrong and i'm glad that the rockefellers bought this land and created the, the national park yeah i don't know how it. else you could look at it you know sure <laughs> and but part of the protest if i remember correctly was as a rancher they used that land
1: we did um, when, when it was when the park was created. Uh, an arrangement was made with the families that had been grazing up there pre-park, and it was that um, we would be able to continue to use it for a lifetime of a family member. So uh, the Porter family, for example, picked Janine, who was the youngest person in their family, and. Um, my family picked my mom she was the youngest person and then janine uh died prematurely Mm -hmm. and my mom was killed in a horseback accident in 1996 so that put us in some limbo about whether we what we would do um with the help of the park because we've had some great uh help from the park superintendents jack nichols and Uh, Stephen Martin, and I mean, they've they've all been great, but those were the guys there at the time this was going on. And with the help of the congressional delegation, we got an extension, so we were able to continue to use it. Um, The last time I grazed cattle in the park was in 2000, for a lot of different reasons, even though we could continue to use it, it just didn't make very much sense to me anymore. So we switched around and we don't graze in the park anymore. Having a working
0: ranch, cattle ranch, what happens to the beef that you're raising?
1: Um, Most of it goes into traditional commercial uh, markets. So um, every fall, we will look at the steer calves that we sell, and probably two-thirds of them get purchased in on an auction and they get shipped to wherever and they go in a feedlot and they do whatever happens there and that used to be 100 percent, but about 12 13 years ago my wife kate said to me you know i think there's a market for beef locally and i think people are going to care a lot about that and where it comes from and we have an arrangement with some and so she made an arrangement with some uh, local breweries. so we feed the spent grain from the breweries to the uh, steers, they stay here in Jackson, and we just take it out in a trough and put it in different places in the field. They eat mostly grass. And gradually, every fall, she buys more and more of the calves from me. I, thought, I, I need to back up and acknowledge that I thought it was a stupid idea. And so what I said was, okay, well, if you want to do it, that's fine. I'll sell you calves in the fall for the same price that I sell them to the normal guys. And I still do that, but she buys more and more every year, and I'm trying to rearrange history to make it seem like I was involved and supportive at the beginning, (laughs) but I wasn't, I wasn't. So she's, um, that's growing. That's kind of a thing now, as you know, people are more interested in that. And how else can people
0: obtain the beef that you're raising, but Kate is selling?
1: (laughs) She does, she goes to the farmer's markets every Saturday, uh, in the summer and uh, you know, people call her. Uh, she has regular uh, customers, restaurants, and it's she also, I know, sells it through uh, Sweet Cheeks. Nick at Sweet Cheeks sells it too. So, kind of several different outlets.
0: Are you guys at the level to where people can buy it online and have it shipped to them in New well, Jersey?
1: Well, that's that's a work in progress. Um, she, I know, has talked to people in Jackson who do that with. Uh, bison, mm-hmm. so it's doable. I think she's been too busy chopping wood to sharpen the axe, but honestly, if that I think that would be a great thing. And she gets calls all the time from people around say, hey, do you ship beef? She just needs to get somebody to sort that out for her. She and I are both at an age where anything that involves a lot of computer stuff, we're not as interested in getting <laughs> up to speed. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: well, congratulations on successful Well,
1: I have to give most of the credit on that to my wife, honestly, but thank you.
0: Yes, yeah. And with, you know, looking back at um, things that you used to do or not used to do here in Jackson. So when you were growing up, uh, how often would you hop on your bike and go mountain biking or, you know, (laughs) jump on your skis and and start skiing? So at what point did... um, did that become part of the
1: everyday life for those seasons? Um, you know, when I was in, uh, I guess, you know, middle school, I had friends like everybody else. And so I would bicycle to town to see friends. But the idea, it was a, a way to get there. Mm-hmm. Bicycling was never anything other than a poor substitute for not being able to drive. So I, it's not like we would bike for fun that I recall. Skiing, you know, we skied at a very young age, um, almost entirely at snow skiing, very rarely at uh, the village. And so I don't, I still don't bicycle and I don't ski. I ski maybe four days a year, five days a year. I don't ski very much anymore. In the winter we feed cows. And um, so a lot of times on the weekends I, I do that so guys can take off um, who work for me. and honestly it's just not as for whatever reason not as interesting to me as it used to be and
0: when you were riding into town as a kid from where the ranch is Uh it had to have been a different experience of as as if somebody were to do that now where where you are now is that was like way out in the boonies
1: it was about yeah two and a half miles to town Mm -hmm. a mile of it was gravel, all the spring belts was gravel, but driving into town was easy. I mean, I wouldn't do it now because I'm not a very good bicycle rider, but there weren't any cars there. There weren't very many cars then. So it wasn't a big deal. Nobody worried about us taking our old clunker Sears bike and wobbling into town. Um,
0: there just wasn't very much there. And you just said something quite interesting as well. Your Sears bike. How important was the Sears and the JCPenney
1: catalog to oh, your family? That, yeah, big deal for sure. I remember we didn't we never had we didn't have TV until I was in high school so I read a lot, still do, but one of the things I remember reading was when I was little was they'd have a big thick like Christmas catalog three inches thick or something and some of it was boring but a lot of it was very cool. And we got stuff from Sears because um, there wasn't every every fall um, when people went to school, you'd see everybody you knew in Idaho Falls buying clothes for the school year, or you'd get it from Sears or something like that. So, I rem- I'm sounding old. No, <laughs> this is no, terrible. I,
0: I remember as as a kid using the J.C. Penny catalog. Yeah. Uh, we did I don't think we had a Sears catalog, but we had the JC Penney catalog and JC Penney was started in Sheridan
1: Kimmer in Kimmer, yeah,
0: okay uh, which I mean Mr. Penny, what a great vision. To I support all that's these a crazy rural places story. and I think you could even buy a house out of the yeah. Sears catalog. yeah, they would everything would be delivered and instructions and you could build a house,
1: yeah. It's like a slow motion paper Amazon.com. I mean oh, yeah. it, everything was there, kind of that you. It was. Think
0: of. I remember as a kid, my mom bought us a go kart, and it came from the J.C. Penney catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had everything. <laughs> and so, my grandparents as well, who, were, my grandmother, who grew up in rural Arkansas, she said, "Our life was about the Sears catalog." Yeah. Because without that, we weren't. We didn't have access to anything. Yeah. And you would mail your money in
1: <laughs> which you would never do today. I know. Yeah. I know. That's it. Yeah, that's a big change. I think people are used to now being able to see something on their computer and me too and go, boom, this will be here in three days. You know? Isn't pretty, it amazing? Yeah. It's
0: it's also frightening to think that you can order something within probably fifteen seconds and you would have it if you really wanted it the next day, yeah, maybe here, not so much the next day, maybe two days, just because it does take it a little bit longer to get here.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure it's entirely healthy either. I mean, sometimes you wonder if it's a good idea when you buy something that quickly, mm-hmm. um, where you know if you'd waited 24 hours, you go, ah, maybe that's not as interesting <laughs> as I thought in that instant. but. Sure how commerce works now. I'll be right back with Brad after this quick message from the show's sponsor. Bubbles,
0: bubbles, bubbles. Grab some bubbles today and uncork centuries of practice which make those little fun bubbles. The liquor store of Jackson Hole can help you find your new favorite bottle of bubbles. Bubbles are so versatile they shouldn't be kept bottled up and should be used for more than just celebrations. Stop in to the liquor store of Jackson Hole to learn more about the Bubbles, which pair well with summer grilling and everyday social time. Visit com slash TLS for more details. So would you say that you've experienced some of the coldest winter ever in this valley as growing up here? Yeah. And what was that like?
1: Oh man, um, the one that comes to mind. I was I was in college. I was going to school in Santa Fe, and I came up and a lot of and I may have been a sophomore in college. I think it was '79, winter '79, and um, I came up and a lot of kids were here from college, and we were all going to get together. And it got extraordinarily cold for a week over Christmas, and New Year's. I mean, re- really, really cold, and the power lines all contracted enough and broke that they snapped, so nobody had power. Nothing would start, um, and if it would start, it wouldn't run, because the diesel would gel in the tanks. I think it was 50 to 60 degrees below zero, 24 hours a day for a week. It never, it never got very warm. Um, we were feeding cows at the time with a tractor, and luckily we still had some teams. So we ended, I remember we ended up having to uh, pull a hay wagon and pitch it with forks and use the team of horses. And my mom, I remember, said, we're never gonna be in a situation again where we have to depend on equipment running. And we were lucky we weren't, we weren't then. But it was kind of interesting because it was absolutely clear and not a breath of wind. So when you're outside, and the the uh, sun, the radiation from the sun, it actually didn't feel that bad, but it hmm. was really, really cold. So at night, what would happen with the cattle? You know, we didn't, to my recollection, we didn't lose any cows. They're very. I mean, it was it was clear and still. It wasn't windy and it wasn't humid. It was obviously really dry, and they are pretty astonishing in their ability to do well they ju- they just eat appreciably more mm-hmm. you just have to feed them a lot more like at least a third more and they'll eat it
0: I, I'm amazed that you didn't lose any cows no at, with it being that cold
1: no
0: I don't think we did that's amazing and being in the ranching industry for so many generations
1: why are you still in the ranching industry <laughs> 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 um I I was uh I don't know, five or six when I started going out with my dad haying. And I would ride on his equipment. I wouldn't I'd just ride with him all day. And so I, I and then I gradually did all the stuff you do and um I uh I, I I didn't really intend to I I never really thought about doing that for a career. Um, I wanted to be a pilot and um, I did that for a while, and then I discovered my eyes weren't good enough to go to to get a first-class medical and fly for the airlines. And so I bought a little business with a friend in West Yellowstone, Montana, and we were flying in the summer, but in the winter it was closed. And my granddad said, "Hey, you know, why don't you go to law school?" He was a huge believer in education, because you're not doing anything productive in the winter, so I applied and got into law school by the skin of my teeth. And when I graduated, I met my wife in law school, and when we graduated, I wanted to go somewhere where nobody knew me. Um, And so we ended up in Phoenix for seven years and had a great time and a great practice. And I moved back here, we decided to move back here because our kids were getting ready to go to school. And 94, and then in 90, so this is a long explanation, in 96, uh, my mom was killed, and I was the only one of my siblings here and I'm the eldest and I was the uh, executor of her estate. So it kind of fell to me. And then luckily, you know, Kate loves it. And, Cause you never know if your spouse is gonna get dumped into this stuff, which can be muddy and bloody and cold and mm-hmm. wet and great too at different times, but she loves it. And so I don't want to say it's inertia, but I, it just somehow all happened to me. And I'm really grateful that it did. I'm glad I'm doing what I'm doing, but I'd have to admit I never, it wasn't always the goal out in front of me. It's just kind of where I ended up. Good place to end up. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't regret practicing law either, but I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. And uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing.
0: And your grandfather being such a advocate for education, how far did he go? Was his opportunities to go for education?
1: He went to the University of Wyoming and he really wanted to be a lawyer Uh he really did but his father prevailed on him that he needed to study agriculture so he graduated with a degree in agriculture from the university and that's where he met my grandmother as well she was at the at the university but I remember him telling me um, we were hauling cows to Pineo one time, and he had a long talk with me. And the upshot of it was at the very end, he said that an education is the only thing. He was trying to talk me into going to law school. He said that the only thing that nobody can ever take away from me is what you know. I so agree. That's so true. Uh, yeah, and I've thought about that. And I, th- I think he was right. So, yeah, anyway, that's how I ended up being a rancher. And I want to keep doing it as long as I can. Would you say that you've
0: spent your lifetime learning and will continue to do so? Yeah, I, and, I hope so.
1: And what do you do to continue your learning process? Um, as it comes to ranching, I'm involved uh, with the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, which is a great industry group with a lot of innovative ideas. And so I, I do that because it keeps me up to date on what's possible in terms of nutrition and range management and stuff like that. You know, I dabble and I read a lot um probably a thousand pages a week of Do you? Yeah. Novels and fiction and nonfiction. So I read a lot and I try to read about things I don't know about. Um I just I'm just curious. So and sometimes you read about something and go, I never knew you know, I never knew people did that or I never knew that's how that worked. And mm-hmm. so so I guess if you ask about how I do like learning or continue to learn it's like, I read a lot. So
0: you're not a power TV no show no. watcher. No, spend I, the time I'm in the not. book. I
1: I have watched some of a Game of Thrones, um, I, not but any. I read the books. <laughs> so I read the books. Um, and I I watch news pretty obsessively, which is not good. Mhm. Um but I don't watch much very much TV.
0: I would say for Whatever you're defining as obsessively, considering you read about a thousand pages a week, um, you're probably not watching that much news.
1: Well, you know, I watch it, I turn it on in the kitchen when I'm doing dishes mm-hmm. or when we're cooking or whatever. But I think the news cycle is so oppressively. I mean, they're always looking for something to say. And so if they run out of facts, then they move to speculation and then they speculate on the speculation in it. So. I think you could get enough news from the newspaper. I'm trying to spend less time watching it on TV.
0: So so true. And another area where you have become educated in and knowledgeable in is astronomy. Yes. And how far does that, and where did that start, and then how far does that go?
1: Um, It started when I was little with my dad, who was interested in astronomy as well. Uh Uh-huh. And then I didn't do it for a long time, and when I was in law school, for some reason, I picked up a book at the library and read it, and I thought, oh my gosh. So I got kind of wound up in it and built telescopes, and then I eventually built an observatory on the end of my house. Um, And I use it not as much as I'd like to, um, but when the weather's good and the moon's not out and I'm not tired, too tired. I use it mostly for um, taking pictures. Sometimes I look through it too, but mostly now taking pictures.
0: How far can you see with your telescope? Uh,
1: The farthest thing I've seen is a quasar that was barely, a—I mean, just a point of light. It's not interesting unless you realize that it's, well, I can't remember the distance of this one, but eight billion light years away. If the universe is 13, I mean, it's pretty far out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but So it's fascinating to look at just because you haven't you know that the photons left that and have traveled more than halfway across the universe and then they go in the front of your telescope and then they come out the back and they hit your eye and it's amazing. It, it fires synapses in your brain, you think that came a long way to do that. Yeah, So,
0: eight billion light years.
1: Yeah, and it may be more, it may be less, but it's I think somewhere in this sixty, seventy percent range of. It's not like
0: driving to the mini mart to pick up a new. a can of Coke. New, new. <laughs> 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 it's a little bit further away. Yeah, yeah. With your passion for astronomy, the amount that you you read, what would you say to to people who are are listening in today? What they should do to. Um, to move forward in, in life. What is what is one little
1: suggestion that you would offer to people? Probably not to take my advice about <laughs> anything. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I think that being curious is a really important part of life. If you're not curious, everything starts to be the same. Everything looks the same. You're indifferent to everything. And you don't notice um, what's going on around you. And so, I don't know. I You know, I have friends who eat at the same restaurant every day. Or friends who only watch one news channel that tends to verify their ideas when they turn on the TV. And I just, I I, I kind of read across the gamut. I think now it's really important to get perspectives from people you don't agree with and be curious about why they feel that way. Um, Because too much of it now is, Too much information. If if you're not somewhat skeptical and curious yourself, it's easier to swallow a lot of stuff that's just BS, in my view.
0: I appreciate that, Um, and I can tell you that I didn't grow up as a reader. And in the past two and a half years, I've challenged myself to read more, and especially looking at my youngest son, who's five, and that kid can, when driving around town, he's got. The encyclopedia. I think he's on letter A right now, and probably ready to go to B. That's
1: impressive. Um,
0: which and that's been in about two weeks. That and this
1: is a book he's looking at, or oh, is it? yeah?
0: Yes, yeah, the World Book Encyclopedia. That's and He's awesome. on letter A, and he's five.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's so good. You know, because I've noticed traveling with my kids, you'll be going along and you'll be driving along, and somebody will say, "What's that mountain?" Or I'll say to Kate, "What's that mountain?" And you, nobody expects. We never used to expect a response, but then. Two minutes later, from the back seat, that's Mount So and So. And people Google Google stuff now when they need it, but they don't really make an effort in advance to learn about something. It's like as you go along, you can look. Oh, what's that? What's that? Mm-hmm. Um, so good for him.
0: Yeah, it's, he's it, not
1: just googling it. He's not. And the reason we got the
0: encyclopedia for him was anybody. A salesman came by. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not anymore. Um, you can Google whatever you want. And I read an article that when you research something and you're gonna Google it, it's gonna give you the results of what you're looking for. But if you do true research and you're looking through something like an encyclopedia, you see not just one answer, because it it also tells you, hey, for more information, go look up this in the encyclopedia. And that's what we wanted him to learn because he is so curious, he's so inquisitive that if he wants to know that stuff, let him read about it and he'll see something else and say exactly oh, a what branch that? that
1: goes off and the next thing you know he's studying whatever that wasn't even on In, the radar indeed
0: yeah. indeed and and
1: that's why we did that for him mm-hmm. yeah
0: are you still doing your article for the jackson hole news and guide no you're not no when did you finish writing that article
1: oh it's been a while um and i and i liked it the, the problem was for me um my sort of mandate was pretty open. I could, I could write about whatever I wanted, so one story or another would occur to me or something that I was mad about or whatever I'd write. And I did it for a number of years, I don't know, six or seven years. And then I'd wait until, I was supposed to turn these things in at five o'clock on Tuesday because they'd come out on Wednesday. And I'd start thinking about it at noon. And then, and I I'm pretty good at dashing something off that's, Grammatically correct and coherent, but the problem was, like, I got worried at, because I was so disorganized. I'd start writing something, I think, do I did have I written about this before, or mm. <laughs> is it just something I've argued with somebody about? And I decided I was going to start repeating myself and look like a fool. So, but I enjoyed it when I was doing it.
0: And you did that for how many years?
1: Gosh. Uh, I want to say maybe six or seven I I would take a hiatus whenever uh, like when my brother was campaigning for Mm -hmm. office I would stop or when Kate was running for office I would stop because it's just hard to, I wasn't a political commentator and so uh, there were some gaps in there but Angus Thurmer, it was when he was still the editor he called me up and asked me to do it and I worked for him for four or five years and then with Kevin Olson after that, for a mm-hmm.
0: while too. Well, you have contributed so much, not just to this community, but also to the state. And um, I thank you for what you and your family have done for Jackson Hole and have done for Wyoming. And um, I appreciate your words of wisdom. Um, <laughs> be be curious. Follow follow yeah. the the curiosity and and learn something new and. and and also learn different perspectives yeah don't I just mean, get settled in with what you're comfortable with
1: yeah i think if you're not uncomfortable every now and again you're not doing a good job of being alive oh i like that don't you think yeah, yeah.
0: well said well said <laughs> brad thank you for taking the time thanks to come for, thank, and thanks sit for here
1: talking to me i enjoyed it and i enjoyed visiting with you yeah and thanks for all you do at the liquor store too i'm I'm putting that in. You guys are awesome, <laughs> awesome customers.
0: Um, and I'll add in the side note. Thank you for making great whiskey.
1: <laughs> Brad. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't
0: fishing. I'll go on and put it in there. Uh, Brad is the founder, co-founder of Wyoming Whiskey, um, which is making whiskey in Kirby, Wyoming. Right. Handcrafted whiskey. Right. Uh, bourbon and other whiskeys so thank you Kirby
1: was a place that we went when we stopped going to the park with cattle so it was a ranch first and then okay this was another Kate diversification
0: Uh uh-huh
1: kind of thing started
0: I'm glad you met Kate I am too yeah (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: not sure how she feels
0: about it but I'm pretty happy with it we'll keep on growing or raising great cattle uh, looking Hello. at the stars and making great whiskey. I'll do it, Stefan. Thanks, man. Thanks, Brad. All Take right. care. To learn more about Brad, Wyoming Whiskey, and the Mead Ranch Beef, please visit the com. episode number 47. I do love hearing from my listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions, please send an email to me, connect at the com. Please remember, when you're in Jackson Hole, be sure to visit my friends at the liquor store of Jackson Hole for a quick hello. I could not create this podcast without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Morey, my musical director, Luke Tagler, and my marketing person, Tana Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.